This is a Double J podcast. For copyright reasons, the music has been edited. 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 To hear the full tracks, listen to The J Files, Thursday nights on Double J, or head to doublej.net.au and click on the track list at the bottom of each episode. Hey there, it's Kaz Tran. Welcome to The J-Files, the podcast for people who love music. Each episode, we pick out a different artist or band, we look at some of the most important moments in their career, and we celebrate their impact on music. We also bust open the Triple J archives, home to decades of iconic interviews. On this episode, it's The Triffids, a band who deserved more success than they got and who broke up far too soon. Like a bunch of other Australian bands in the 80s, they were much more popular overseas. After years drumming up support in their home country, they moved to London. They've got a great pad just off Kensington High Street. They're living um, like kings and queens. They've done it the right way. All the uh, bands that went over uh, earlier just did it the wrong way. I mean, Mm. we've all learnt now how to do it. Nick Cave's still looking for a flower. Go, Nick, go, try and find one. It's worn out, you know, the, the floor of many people, many friends' rooms. Robert Forster and Grant McLennan from The Go-Betweens describing the Triffids in 1984. They did a, a couple of gigs with Echo and the Bunnymen and uh, went over really well. They've really toughened up their sound. They're um, really quite abrasive now and they've done uh, a peel session, which was quite good. And they've played a few gigs in their own right and uh, the press likes them. A year later, they became the first Australian band to grace the cover of NME. 1985 was to be the year of the Triffids. And then, at the end of the decade, it was all over. This promising band with its critical acclaim and rave headlines disbanded. So what happened? Why did it all come to such a premature end? The Triffid story begins in Perth in the 70s with schoolmates Dave McComb and Alzie McDonald mucking around making music tapes. It was me and Alzie being incredibly bored and having nothing to do on uh, weeknights and uh, weekends and uh, because we sort of were best friends and lived out of each other's pockets. And we'd start doing other things and including music we sort of did like just... uh, humorous books of you know poetry and things like that not not like bohemian uh po-faced poetry more just uh, comedy stuff i guess and uh you know we tried doing paintings which were just like melting styrofoam with uh you know explosive fluids and things like that on top of canvases and then last but not least we you know just tried making tapes i had a couple of old really old reel-to-reel tape recorders and um, we'd do overdubbing by taping from one to the other and the other back to the other, you know, 24 times or whatever, until all you heard was tapius. And, um, you know, it was a totally ramshackle thing. I thought that if you had to be a musician, you had to start when you were seven years old. And I was 14, 15, and I thought there was no way that I'd be a musician, you know. It's too late. <laughs> I was already, you know, sort of a, an old maid. Um, old maid... <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, whatever the expression is. And, um, you know, then music just seemed to get more and more important. 
I mean, I always had been, I came from a family of uh, three older brothers who constantly played um, music all the time. And in one of my earliest memories is sort of listening to things like Ruby Tuesday and from my eldest brother. Uh, it was a complete it? Rolling Stones nut. So when did Robert join the band? Um, quite a lot later. Then after me and Alice, we had a guy called Andrew McGowan who's since become an Anglican minister. And uh, uh, then we had a guy called Phil Kukoulis. And um, then when Phil left... Um, he went off to, you know, do philosophy or something. And then Rob sort of just said, uh, you know, can I stand in for a while? And I said, yeah, OK, as long as it's not for too long, you know, because being brothers, you know, don't exactly want to be in a band with your brother for half your life. <laughs> and look what's happened. <laughs> While the early days of the band saw different members come and go, the lineup finally settled on brothers David and Robert McComb, Martin Casey on bass, Jill Burt on keys, Elsie McDonald on drums, and Graham Lee on guitar. They put out a series of tapes and EPs, signed a record deal, and released their debut album, Treeless Plain. But it wasn't long before the Triffids were an independent band again. In 1983, Triple J's Virginia Moncrief spoke to David McComb and Elsie McDonald about ditching their label. Yes, we've uh, parted companies and gone separate ways with uh, our record company of the past eight months, The White Label, which uh, is, uh, I think, a mutually happy um, split-up, really, because we felt they weren't uh, doing a great deal with us and um, we weren't really uh, going the same way as uh, lots of other bands that uh, they like to package, like the expression, or, or or putting, you know, bands with cinematic film clips or any of that sort of stuff that we really don't want to do. I mean, it's not as though we have some great thing about integrity, integrity, but we do want to remain true to how we want to be presented. It all usually comes down to the same thing, um, you know, that uh, basically the things which uh, keep a band sustained in the uh, mass market is... You know, no matter what label you're on, is uh, is the, f- the film clip and the uh, the big exposure and the record airplay on AM radio and such like. So, what do you reckon you'll be doing now? Oh, very. I mean, we had lots of experience in Perth and here doing everything ourselves, doing it, bringing out records by ourselves and tapes and taking them around to stores by ourselves, and uh, so it'll be uh, no trouble at all for us to do that. Well, that's really interesting then that you decided to, say, sign to White, which has extremely big distribution and, and power, when you were really used to doing everything yourself. Why did you decide to do that? Well, it almost, it's a lot of work. I mean, you can't romanticise, you know, how the independent label too much. It's sort of a lot of work and it's hard to reach people, but at least you have complete and utter control over everything you're doing. There's no, you know, no middleman, no nothing. And uh, so we're happy for the time being to return to that state of affairs. In 1984, the Triffids took that gutsy work ethic and moved to London. Within a year, they'd be on the cover of NME, 
recorded with BBC Radio's John Peel and toured the UK and Europe. After years spent slugging it out, driving thousands of Ks back and forth across Australia, things were finally happening. And then they released Born Sandy Devotional, an album critics called a masterpiece. Here's Dave McComb and Graeme Lee in 1986 talking about the album's lead single, Wide Open Road. Um, well, I certainly, I mean, our whole attitude towards it is making sure that it gets every available opportunity because it would be, you know, stupid not to. We're the type of band that does some things which are more suitable for, um, you know, wide, you know, we do some records which should be heard in every lounge room in the country and, and some which maybe shouldn't, you know, some which you should just play in the toilet or something to yourself. Um, and this is certainly one of the, you know, the ones that should be given every chance possible, really. mention the word success, what does it actually mean to you as a, as a person, say, David first? Uh, very little. It just means, it's a completely overused sort of term to me and it, yeah, it, it's just become so vague as to be, mean nothing. People, unfortunately, just immediately uh, connote being in, in a band and spending time in a band with some sort of um, you know, ladder mentality that you're trying to get the top of the heap or the top of the rung or something, and if if you don't get um, uh, to a certain level of success by a certain of, amount of time, then you've failed somehow. That has been the complete opposite of the whole view of our band since we started. It was never, um, you know, it, it was never dependent upon our survival that we, you know, achieved, you know, making this much money or something like that. Okay, well, Our survival has been a lot more intangible like that. It's been dependent upon travelling and, uh, you know, lots of things like that. It, and apart from that, it's just complete self-satisfaction with the music, you know. And that last record, we were completely satisfied with ourselves, so I guess you could call that success. OK, Graham. I consider um, that we are a success. Um, like Dave said, we've, we've just made an album that we're really pleased with. And uh, it shows every every sign of of getting uh, wide acceptance. So, you know, we're a success. Mm. One, two, three. The Triffids certainly were a success. Born Sandy Devotional elevated them to a festival band, and they continued to grow in popularity, especially in Europe. In 1987, they were booked to play the Australian Made Tour, headlined by In Excess and Jimmy Barnes. The festival celebrated Australian bands who'd made it big overseas. It was Michael Hutchins who insisted the Triffids be included. Alzie McDonald and Jill Burt told Triple J they were initially surprised to be booked. We were maybe surprised to be offered it originally and then we sort of thought about it a bit more and thought, well, of course, why not? You know, it's, um, the, the prerequisite for being on it was... Um, uh, overseas achievement or, you know, recognition. And, uh, you know, I don't mind saying that I suppose, we're, you know, we've had as much as any other band on that, that line-up. Um, the only thing, of course, is that 
no one would really expect us to be playing with those those bands on any other occasion, I suppose. Um, and so they had to make the whole event seem something quite unique and special, and I think a lot of people drop, would have dropped their prejudices for the occasion. I mean, I'm sure that goes for the bands too. Mm. Well, just on that, that recognition factor of achievement overseas, um, you're, obviously the things that you've done um, over there have been fantastic, but it's always been uh, ignored, really, by, by the mainstream of, of Australian music mm. industry. And um, I thought it was fantastic that, that you'd actually been approached. Did you, do you feel that you know, this is some kind of um, milestone for you? Mm, I, I do. I think that um, it's quite significant that they've actually accepted or acknowledged what we have achieved in Europe. Um, and we're possibly the only band that has had any achievements of the same kind of, of all the bands in Europe, this is. Of course, most of those bands would have been to America and that's where their groundwork's been done. But um, I, we've probably a- achieved in Europe more than any of those other bands. And um, it's um, quite satisfying to know that um, it has been acknowledged here. Two years on from this moment, the Triffids disbanded. It wasn't a slow decline, though, with another two albums being recorded and released in that time. The year before, they'd put out In the Pines, which they made in a shed in Western Australia. Well, it was recorded in a wool shed, <laughs> hence the wool shed album. Now, we all packed up our you know, eskies and uh, blankets and sheets and... Um, trottled off down south from Perth for a week to a place called Ravensthorpe, which is quite away from Perth and quite an isolated spot and set up an eight-track recording, you know, eight-track recording equipment in the woolshed on um, Dave and Rob's family farm. And um, we stayed in the Shearer's Quarters. There was about 17 people, I think, were there for the week. And, um, in the one bed. Yeah, in the one bed. <laughs> and um, had a pretty pretty good time in the process of making this um, recording. Yeah, I mean, what possessed you to, to go out and record an album in a wool shed, of all things? Oh, it was um, the, the germ of the idea sort of came a few years before. I mean, it's really just to um, remove yourself from the fairly standardised studio environment. And uh, if you just apply yourself and plan it, um, and and you have a few weeks to spare. You can you can actually get around to doing these sorts of things, and they don't just become sort of uh, things that you might write in your diary or you know remember to do one day. And uh, and that was the uh, the essence behind it. And of course, what that meant was that we could use or you know take advantage of all sorts of sounds and rooms and uh, try and get a different sounding record and uh, and try and you know sort of and fix the sort of emotional content and the style of the songs around that sound. While they were recording In the Pines, they were already thinking about the next album. The actual meaning of the word Kalentua it's uh, an old expression. I think it's English, but it has Latin derivation. 
Uh, it means uh, sailors that were sailing on the high seas two, three hundred years ago, uh, after many days at sea, would become delirious and uh, a type of psychotic homesickness. And they would uh, attempt to walk on the water believing that they were uh, green fields and try and get back to where, wherever they came from. But that's not her. That's just the lie. It's only an image of hers. Just a trick of the lie. You said that this sounded... I'm talking about Trick of the Light being such a beautiful song. You said it was countryish, or what to start with? Well, when, it, when the song was first put together, I mean, Dave just... He had it pretty well there on the spot. Mm. And uh, it was while we were doing um, In the Pines. Right. And uh, so that was thrown into the melting pot, and it had a... Um, we just were rehearsing it down there, and it had that, that feel to it. Everything mm. about it was In the Pines-ish. And uh, I think it's really great that... Uh, we could take the gem of an idea that was in that song and completely transform it into what it is now. Yes. Um, and that was really what happened, uh, not only at, before we started recording, it was mainly while we were doing it, just, um, just mucking around. I can hear the customers, they're saying yes, it's time to go home. In 1989, the Triffids released what would be their final album, Black Swan. Rumours were circling that the band was on the brink of breaking up. But when Alzie McDonald and Jill Burt dropped by Triple J, this was news to them. The new Triffids LP is possibly less Australian musically than the other Triffids LPs. Now, I've read some things where uh, this has been sort of that kind of attitude as, a, as an interviewer asked that kind of question it's looked down upon because oh, it's, it's, pretty, it's a dumb thing to say because Australians made it but the influences are much more international well you know it depends what way you look at it I mean I, I look at Calenture in a way as being in terms of subject matter um, a lot more European in um, or universal, they don't really have. They're not really anywhere. Um, whereas songs on this record, um, I look at as being very definitely set within Australian, you know, con- constraints. What we wanted to try and do was maybe combine uh, sort of quite a few ingredients that wouldn't normally go together, or you wouldn't expect them to go together. Like uh, you could have a programmed uh, drum and bass track, but with very traditional instruments going over the top of it. Or you might, you, or lyrically the song might um, delve into you know the uh, the psyche of one particular individual that uh, maybe sounds as if it's set in some blistering, scorching Australian landscape. Um, but, but musically, that might, it might include things which aren't uh, sort of, uh, you know, terribly Australian sounding. It's uh, quite a few um, uh, sort of contrasts in, in the way things are blended. I mean, whereas two or three years ago, maybe, uh, off Born Sandy Devotional and things, there was quite a pinpointing of of uh, musical setting, you know, um, trying to conjure up some type of uh, musical setting, you know, in a, in a physical sense. Yeah. 
haven't really deliberately gone for it this time around um, much. But uh, but it's hard to say because, um, as you said before, being Australian, so it's especially when you're away from Australia, you can't help but somehow make reference to it, whether it be some type of musical effect or certainly lyrically. There will obviously be a claim that this album is too eclectic. Um, yes. Mm. They won't come from the record company because they're obviously trying to be your pals because they've heard the rumours about this could be the last Triffords album unless things go well. We won't even talk about that because I can see from the, your eyebrows going up you're not yeah, interested well, in hearing well, we've heard a lot of We've been today, hearing about a lot of that today, yes. It's, uh, God, it's, new, it's news, news to us. Yeah. The Triffids did take a break in 1989, but it wasn't supposed to be permanent. Even two years later, when Dave McComb was interviewed by Richard Kingsmill, they still had every intention of continuing. No, they're not definitely no more. I mean, in uh, the middle of 89, we decided to take long service leave, sabbatical, call it what you will, and uh, everyone went off to do various things. Now, what's happened is there's been a great deal of babies being born, amongst other things, and uh, so uh, that makes it very hard to, to, for the Triffids to suddenly start touring again. And we'll, we'll probably play together again eventually, but, you know, it might be in an old age home. <laughs> OK, well, if the Triffids are on hold for a wee bit longer, what about uh, your solo career? I mean, we've got the Message EP out, and also you've just appeared on the Black Eyed Susans EP, what more can yeah. we expect? Well, I'll probably be living in uh, Melbourne next year in 92 and doing some sort of record there. I've certainly got enough songs for it. Um, basically, the Triffids, uh, our relationship with Ireland exploded when there was a sort of Stalinist purge at Ireland Records in England. And, uh, you know, we don't know anyone that's... that. Who, who signed us, there's no one, none of those people are there anymore. So I'd look to doing something here in the meantime before I go overseas again. David McCombs' esteemed songwriting career continued after the Triffids disbanded. He played with the Black Eyed Susans and released several solo albums. In 1996, his health was deteriorating and following a heart transplant, he also had a car accident. Sadly, Dave McComb passed away in February 1999. Here's the Triffids' Graham Lee and Black Eyed Susan's Phil Kukulis and Rob Snarsky describing his exceptional songwriting talents. He did make things quite hard for everybody, but just because he, purely because he was a, a perfectionist and uh, something that most people would, would think, wow, that's fantastic. Dave would think was ordinary and he was always after the extraordinary. It's like he always um, had a very... A pretty clear picture of what he had in mind. Pretty much, yeah. And sometimes, like, sometimes totally the whole arrangement of a song. Mm. Um, and he'd be like tapping out the hi hats for uh, for the drama. Mm. Yeah, and he'd have the bass part. He'd have little guitar lines. Was he good? Uh, at, was he good at actually what he heard in his head and the way he wanted? Was he was he good at actually translating that and telling you in person? Uh, extremely good. 
Yes. He would just say, we'd, if necessary, he'd just pick up your guitar and say, it goes like this. <laughs> I'm setting you free. I'm setting you free. Yeah. I'm setting you free. The Triffids never enjoyed the same mainstream success as many of their peers, but there are few bands in the country who have the type of acclaim and influence as this WA group. Their evocative songs are testament to their unique chemistry, combining the poetry of David McComb, the weeping steel guitars of Graham Lee, and the spacious textures of Gilbert and Robert McComb, which are some of the ingredients that made this band so special. The J-Files is a Double J podcast, produced by Gab Burke, with production support from Phoebe Bennett and Sam Wicks. Theme music is by Art vs. Science. You can check out Double J anytime on the Triple J app or at doublej.net.au. I'm Kaz Tran. Thanks for listening. <laughs>